Welcome to the Potter's House Salmon Arm Podcast. We are a Bible-believing church located in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. We are proudly part of the Christian Fellowship Ministries with 3,000 churches around the world. We are a church focused on world evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Here we will share recent sermons from PHSA Church and other sermons from throughout our fellowship. I am Pastor David Bickford, and I will be your host for this podcast. I thank you for listening today, and we hope these messages are a blessing to you and bring you closer to God. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast again. My name is David Bickford. I'm the pastor here in the, at the Potter's House in Salmon Arm. And today, I just kinda, before we jump in, I just want to kind of give you a you know, a little bit of a background of who I am, you know, so that you kind of know who, you know, a little bit more about me and, and what we're doing up here at the Potter's House in Salmonar. So my name is, again, you know, David, and I was sent out, you know, last year to start a work for, for God in the town of Salmonar, British Columbia. My background is a little complex. I obviously, uh, you probably, if you've been listening, you know, I was in the United States Marine Corps from when I was 18. And I spent five years there as a helicopter crew chief and mechanic on CH-53 Sikorsky's, which is a large helicopter. I loved my time in the Marine Corps. I got to deploy to Japan. And I also spent some time in the Middle East uh, for the uh, Iraqi freedom. And so I spent about nine months over there in theater in Kuwait and Iraq, and way back in 2003. After getting out, I had actually had the opportunity. I worked for the Navy, overhauling those same aircraft. And then I was, I also did some time in the Air Force Reserve uh, as an aerial porter, loading aircraft. And all that time, I was also working towards my, my bachelor's and my master's degrees. And I was so to kind of give you an idea, though, like I got saved when I was in the Marine Corps when I was about 19 years old. And it was, it was life-changing. Obviously it was a dramatic change in my life. I was headed down a, a dark path. I was, I was a drunk and I was you know quite violent and I was destroying the thing I'd worked so hard for, which was to become a United States Marine. And so I got saved in February, 2001 while I was deployed just on a training operation outside of Yuma, Arizona. And it was it was my friend John Morris that led me to the Lord there, and so I was. That's where I started going to church with the Christian Fellowship Ministries at the Cornerstone Church in San Diego. It, you know, as time went on, I ended up getting married, and we ended up my wife being from Canada. We ended up moving up to Canada, and I started going to the Chilliwack Church in or the Potter's House Church in Chilliwack, British Columbia. Went there for oh about a decade, I believe before getting sent out to start this work for God. So that's just a little bit about me and I'll 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 try to you know give some more information about who I am and 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 what's going on, but me and my wife Sarah we're we're pioneering this church here in Salmon Arm. We're you know dedicated to reaching the lost and seeing people set free from the bondage of sin in Jesus name. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump in with the message I have today. So it's titled, An Atheist Enabled Me to Believe, A Spiritual Transformation is a Subheading. And the text we'll be working from is Matthew 7, 15 through 20. So one of the things I was looking at when working and putting together this sermon is I was reading the book, The you know, Mission Drift by Peter Greer. 
And in there, there's a segment where it talks where it, it, it uses that term, an atheist enabled me to believe. And so it says, it was an atheist who convinced me, Chris, that our world needs more than just good humanitarianism. Matthew Paris, a British journalist, wrote in the London Times, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. In a day and age in which many in our society believe Christianity to be irrelevant or at best, irrelevant at best or dangerous at worst, Paris's conviction shocked me. In his article, he repeatedly asserted his belief, his unbelief in God, but he admitted that his own beliefs are insufficient to solve the issues of corruption and poverty in our world. Shortly after a trip to Africa, he wrote, Now a confirmed atheist, I have become convinced the enormous contributions that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of the secular NGOs, non-governmental agencies or organizations, government projects and international aid efforts. These alone will not uh, will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Paris is clear. The message of Jesus is the solution. Christianity frees people. African Christians stand tall because they know they are made in God's image, and they understand their personal responsibility to make a difference in their communities. They submit to a higher moral code. So I find this to be a pretty interesting admission, and that's why I believe it, and I truly believe it takes a lot more faith to deny God and and to be an atheist than it does to see what God could do in your own life and have that transformation become real in you. So let's look at our text in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. A tree and its fruit. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every health, healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased bear bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Amen. It's a, a powerful message even in today's world. You know, we see, you know, we're starting to see something happen in the world. We're seeing, you know, movie stars. We're seeing, you know, recording artists come to the Lord. And we're seeing a lot of them actually make stands immediately for the Lord. And even to the point of some of them stepping out of, the industries they've been a part of for years because they feel led by the Lord to be something different. They are new creation in Jesus name. And so we, we, we obviously, you know, pray and hope that that continues and that they're they're They mature in Christ and that they continue to bear good fruit because that's exciting to see a changed life. A very exciting thing. Our world today is constantly being bombarded with the idea that religion is for the weak. And it is something that people who are unintelligent or lacking in in logic fall into. This this is on purpose, and and I can't I can't emphasize that enough that this is on purpose. In fact, I was just reading a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'll see if I can I can find it here off the cuff real quick. I find it to be a a pretty poignant. And I apologize, it's not from C.S. Lewis, it's from G.K. Chesterton. It says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult 
and left untried. So again, that's from G.K. Uh, Chester, Chesterton. And the quote is, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And that's certainly true in our day and age. Oftentimes, people are not complaining that the the Christian way of living or to the, you know, to live as a Christian is difficult or is, is easy, right? They're, they're saying it's too hard and that because it's hard, therefore I'm not even going to try. I'm going to discount it and not try because it's difficult, but it is fruitful. And that's something we want to look at in first Corinthians one it says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. And in Romans 11, 7 through 10, it says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then, and David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The scripture points us to the reality that without a knowledge of a living God, we will be like a ship without a rudder. We were chasing the wind and we are only left with our fickle nature and our own desires to move us forward in this world. That might seem cruel, but it is for the sake of the elect. It is for those who open their hearts to Christ and allow themselves to be changed by the message of Christ and receive salvation by grace through Christ. That brings me to my first point, which is purpose, point, and price. As we think about the excerpt from the illustration, it's helpful to ask yourself, what is the purpose of atheism? The reality is there is no purpose in the belief of atheism because it is the belief in nothingness. And how can it bring purpose to life if it at its essence is the belief in nothing? If you were to go to American Atheist website, you would see that they define themselves this way. Atheism is one thing, a lack of belief in God's. Atheism is not an affirmative belief that there is no God, nor does it answer any other questions about what a person believes. It is simply a rejection of the assertion that the God, that there are gods. Atheism is too often defined incorrectly as a belief system. To be clear, atheism is not a disbelief in gods or a denial of gods. It is a lack of belief in gods. Older dictionaries define atheism as a belief that there is no God. Clearly, theistic influence takes these definitions. The fact that dictionaries define atheism as there is no God betrays the monotheistic influence. Without the monotheistic influence, the definition would at least read there are no gods. This self-description identifies the reality that even within the atheist community, there is an acceptance of lacking. They adamantly say that unbelief is different than belief. And I'm not here to debate the logic of atheism because I know that Christ died for me and that through him i am saved by grace i have a i had a personal encounter with with jesus christ and i see him at work within me my family and all around the world as i mentioned at the beginning that out th that time out in the desert of Ari uh, Yuma, arizona when i came to the cross in my own life and i gave my life to jesus christ was a was was a personal transformative experience and to me it's undeniable that I came into relationship with Jesus Christ. No, what I want to highlight is that without purpose, there is no point, and that there, and that when there is no point, there is no price. 
The system of unbelief causes many to falter and stumble because it focuses all energies inward on the individual. And as we know from the Bible, the human heart can be deceitful and wicked. And Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you know, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And just as an aside, too, I heard, you know, another another quote, can't remember which one, where this one was from, but it was actually, I think, just an Instagram post where a kid was talking about, about atheism. And it was a comedian, and he was saying that, you know, atheists will deny, you know, God, but yet they believe in nothingness, and that when you die, you return to nothingness. So in a way, they believe that their creator is nothing, and they return to their creator of nothing when they get, when they die, because there's nothing after death. So it's it's almost a circular logic too, because they believe in a a theology, whether they deny it or not, that requires a tremendous amount of faith. But when we look at the rise of twentieth century socialism, communism, we see a world that is striving to worship itself. The idea of evolution is one of of where is one where humanity pulls itself up through the force or through force and makes a utopia of a world by eradicating God and per, by, well, eradicating God while proving his very existence. There are several examples of the cruelty when you remove the boundaries of God's morality. During the Holodomor of or the Ukrainian genocide of 1932 to 33, the people of Ukraine came under the control of Soviet Russia. As the as communism swept the land, starvation quickly followed the followed. The Workers' Party stole the land from farmers and created a famine. That within a very short window drove many crazy. Starvation quickly led to all sorts of wickedness, including cannibalism. The governing authorities posted propaganda posters saying, remember, it's wrong to eat your children. I'll let that sink in for just a second. It's They had to post propaganda posters to remind people who were starving, remember, it's wrong to eat your children. This isn't the first time this happened in the Soviet Union. The same thing happened during the 1921 famine in Russia. Remember, it's wrong to eat your kids. My point here is not to highlight the wrongs of the Soviet Union, but rather what quickly happens to man when we refuse to acknowledge God. Christ in the gospel is our purpose. Salvation is the point, and there is no price too high for the grace that we have received. This is why an atheist like Matthew Paris knows that Christian missionaries will do more with less to see Africa saved. In 2 Kings 6, 24-31, it's the, we see the, the, this, the image of the siege of Samaria, Ben-Hadad's siege of Samaria. So in verse 24, afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of, of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel, Jehoram, son of Ahab, was passing on the wall, passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And then the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and on the next day I said to her, 
Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. And when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains at his shoulders today. So this portion of scripture shows us that even God's chosen people can fall so far away from his calling and his purpose. In fact, if you if you look at the reaction of Jehoram, it's pretty startling. Instead of repenting and turning to God, he curses the prophet Elijah and calls for his head. And that brings me to my, my next point, which is secularism and relative truth. In today's age, we are told to let go of our biblical faith. What we are given in return or in place of our faith is secularism and relative truth. And it's it's that's what they want to replace God and absolute truth with, is secularism and relative truth. Secularists can also be defined as atheists or agnostics. An atheist is one who says there is sufficient evidence to show that God does not exist and an ox and an and sorry. An agnostic is one who says there is insufficient evidence to know whether or not God exists. The functional atheist is one who is apathetic concerning God's existence. For this, the purpose of this profile, the term secularist will be used to indicate all three. So during the time of the Renaissance and with the invention of the printing press, there was a, an explosion of information. And not unlike our own time and the invention of the internet, smartphones, social media. This expansion of accessible information allowed for the Protestant Reformation, but it also allowed for the contesting ideas to be pitted against each other. The rise of the scientific method was often being used to contest belief in God. This was not by mistake, but was done purposely because some groups were afraid of losing power. In order to maintain control, they wanted to separate and divide people into camps. Here's an excerpt from an article I found highlighting this point, written by Dean Halverson, Director of Apologetics for the International Students. Toward the end of the Renaissance, the modern method of empirical science began to develop the key players, or develop. The key players were Nicholas Copernicus, Johann Kepler, and Galileo Galilei. Although it may seem ironic now, each of these men believed in a Christian God. They viewed science as a studying the handiwork of the Almighty Creator, discerning His natural laws, Galileo considered God to have written two books, the Bible and nature. Contrary to popular belief, the cause for diversions between Christianity and science originated not with the church, but with the university professors who were threatened by Galileo's revolutionary ideas. These professors were steeped in Greek scientific method, which included observation to a small extent, but mostly explained the workings of nature through rational deduction from first principles or assumptions an entire view of the universe had been built up. Consequently, the professors embraced such misconceptions as the sun having no imperfections, the moon being a perfectly smooth sphere that shone with light with its own light, and the earth alone having a moon since the earth was at the center of the universe. Galileo's recently invented telescope quickly demonstrated the incorrectness of such assumptions. Not willing to be thwarted by Galileo, the professors decided to make a con the controversy religious rather than academic. They argued that the heliocentric, sun-centered view contradicted scripture. They, they pulled from Psalm 104.22 saying the sun rises, therefore the sun must revolve around a stationary earth. In fact, in the face of what 
at the time appeared to be genuine contradiction between scripture and the heliocentric theory, the theologians, the theologians of the Roman Catholic Church had no choice but to condemn Galileo's view because the conflict had challenged the authority of the church. And as a result, the controversy, the schism between reason and faith had begun. And there were now two apparently irre- irreconcilable sources of truth, the church and science. So what, what point am I trying to make with this? Like, let's look at our text again. And, uh, you know, before I jump back into the text, just think about this. Think about how it had to be non-believers twisting the scripture in order to fit a, a, a narrative that they wanted to, to push so that they could try to maintain their power. Because that's what we see a lot in today's day. We see people who aren't even, who don't believe in the word of God try to take pieces of the word of God, twist it to make it look, either make, make themselves look better or make Christians look worse. And then they try to push it back as being a religion problem when it's actually a, a, an unbeliever issue. It's, it's the unbelief of those individuals that can cause you know, schisms to be created. And just like with the example of Galileo and what happened to a lot of early, you know, early Protestants even, is this idea that, you know, there that the power sources are going to be contested. And so then therefore they're going to make it an argument that it never was intended to be. So in, in our text again at 15, it says, Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We see that from this example from history. You will recognize them by their fruits, just dissension, you know, just trying to cause problems within within the body. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. As Matthew Paris recognized in Africa, we need to recognize within ourselves. Our truth as Christians must come from the word of God. We must base our beliefs on the Bible. Our morality, our passions, our purpose must reside in the word. In the article above, we can see that the natural human reaction to pressure is to divide and separate. The goal is to assert power, and relativism relativism is a tool that's used for this purpose. In John 18, 37-38, it says, Then Pilate said to him, so you are king, Jesus answered. You say that I am king for the purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then Pilate said to him, what is truth? The world will use relative truth in order to obfuscate or make unclear Christ's message. That is why so many will try to fit Jesus into other faiths or pantheons. It's also why so many will give up so much of the word of God while claiming to still hold true to Christ. In reality, this is folly because Christ proclaims he is the truth and the light, and that through his words and teaching, that we find, that's the only way we will find a path to salvation. Which brings me to my final point, which is Christ died so that others shall live. The truth of the gospel is very succinct. Christ is the Son of God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. He came to earth to be a sacrifice that we needed, to be the sacrifice that we needed, and to atone for our sins. He died and rose from the dead so that those who believe in him will be saved. In Philippians 2, 9-11, it says, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 says, and it's a charge to us to preach the word, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The world will contend for our attention. And it will use every opportunity to distract us from Jesus. It will try to embarrass you for holding on to the absolute truth of the gospel. It will try to move you with words and phrases like open your mind, find your own truth, love is love. The danger of relativism is that it allows for every individual to live according to its own their own desires. Why do we need absolute truth? It is not enough to understand why we need absolute truth. With no absolute truth, there's no there are no longer any standards. I believe it's safe to say many of our standards, which were once considered absolute truths, are now under attack in our society. Not just here in Canada, but in America, but all around the world. When the standards are removed, the people are free to do what they want. And we become a society that lives by relative truth. While some may see this as, a liber- as liberating, I see this as disastrous. We would become like Israel at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. All people did whatever seemed right in their eyes. Judges 21, 25. And we're starting to see this today, right? We, we see, you know, the conflict in Israel and the, the terrorist attack that, it, that, ins, that caused this, this main thrust of this war that's going on right now. And we're only like a month be, beyond when this war really kicked off because of that terrorist act. And already we see the leading Ivy League colleges in the United States trying to make exceptions for genocidal rhetoric of one group while claiming the other group that is actually the one that is defending an actual attack that happened onto them and saying that they were wrong, even though there was peace. There were there were opportunities for negotiation on October 6th, and then on October 7th, there was none. But it's interesting that the that the the highest thinkers of our society are making excuses and saying, oh, well, we need to be, oh, we need to understand the context of why people are calling for genocide of the Jewish people. These same people were telling us about the importance of watching the way we speak because words are violence and silence is violence. And if you were to take any group and replace the, the, you know, what, what people are calling the genocide of the Jews, if you were to replace Jew and place any other group in there, then those same college professors would immediately claim, those college presidents would immediately claim that it is 
against their code of conduct, but they can't bring themselves to saying that it's against their code of conduct right now because of moral relativism. And because all their learning has allowed them to come to a place where they cannot see truth for truth. In John 14, 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This statement shuts the door to any other way of to the, getting to the Father and any other hope of salvation. If you believe this, you will experience the benefit of this truth. However, your belief is not necessary for this to be true. This will be true whether you believe it or choose not to believe it. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, and that will never change. So as I close, let's review. Michael Paris has a self-proclamation that as an atheist was able to clearly identify the need for Christianity in Africa because his own truth was insufficient to meet the needs of the African people. Without the necessary spiritual change in the people, there could be no lasting improvement. Also, secular organizations are not equipped for this task at hand because they have no message for hope. Even if they were to lift people up out of poverty, it does not deal with the spiritual, emotional, or societal issues that will still be present in their situation. And this is a problem that we also see in our own country. Another aside to that is that much of the secular world, when they go into Africa, are trying to push you know, gr- what the first world considers green initiatives that make it very, very difficult for, for the these emerging economies to be able to grow and sustain themselves. So they try to they try to push these truths that they have come to while, while not recognizing the reality of what made the Western society strong was, was um, these energy sources that we've been able to use for the last hundred plus years. And they've gotten much cleaner since then. So, but yet we want to we want to make it more difficult for these other countries. So what hope does that bring? Their relative truth doesn't bring hope. The secular world doesn't have answers for that. The secular world also doesn't have answers for the sickness that is in our soul. Our ailment is sin. And no matter how hard humanity tries to solve the sin problem while denying the sin problem, they can never be successful because Christ is the only way. The Soviets in Russia, China, Vietnam, and throughout the world tried an atheistic route that leads to horrible pain and atrocities. Other countries strive and fail. Western democracies are rotting because of sin, the sin problem. The only answer, the only truth is Christ. But they shun and ridicule the answer while continuing to tear each other apart. And that is why we as Christians must hold to the truth. I want to reiterate the words of Paul. And what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Finally, our text tells us, in Jesus' word, thus you will recognize them by their fruits.
we must then strive to live a life that bears fruit so that those who are still lost will be able to recognize God through our fruit, our works. Christian, Christian testimony challenges Michael Paris's unbelief because we have more to work for and live for than the belief of nothing. And we know the king is on his throne and we should strive in patience to work so that others will come to the absolute truth. Humbly we serve a living God so that others might be saved. So if you're driving, obviously, keep your eyes on the road. But if if not, if you're just listening along, you know, I like every head bowed, every eye closed. Because at the end of every message, there's an invitation. If this message has resonated with you, if you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit, and you, you, you know that you're a sinner, and you want to get right with God, then right now signify that with an uplifted hand. I can't see it, but God can. And if you did raise your hand, if God is speaking to you now, and you know that he's speaking to you now, and you want to get your heart right, it's very simple. Just re- repeat after me, dear Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have fallen short of the mark, but I repent of my sin. I turn away from my sin, and I accept you as my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I let you into my heart to be my Lord, to be my King. In Jesus' name, I give you all the praise and glory. Amen. Very simple prayer. All that is, is a recognition of sin and acceptance of Jesus as your Lord. And so that, that is salvation. That is that simple admission of, of repentance and acceptance of God's grace is, is what it means to be saved. And I pray that God would fill you with the Holy Spirit, overflowing, and that you would go and you'd find a church to, to lock into. If you're in Salmon Arm, we'd love to have you come and join us. But if you're not and you want to reach out, I would be more than happy to point you in the direction of one of our you know, 3,000 fellowship churches globally. Because God is moving in these last days. And we want you to be part of the body of Christ. So I, I just, I'm going to close in prayer. Real quick, dear Lord, I thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives. And I pray that this message goes to the root, goes to the heart of of everybody listening and helps us to be more fruitful as we go forward in the service of our 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 Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. And I can't wait for you to come back next time. to the PHSA Potter's House Salmon Arm Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Potter's House underscore Salmon Arm to keep up to date on what we are doing, join the conversation, and discover how Jesus Christ can revolutionize your life.